Philippians 2, chapter 1, began with me. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Paul's relationship with these folks at Philippi had been formed over a very short period of time to be very intimate, possibly around 10 years. And in this, he wants them to understand something very significant. But as he writes to them, he talks about the mind of God. When we're thinking about the mind of God, we're thinking about the mind the mind of deity. And when we think about that, we, we, we ponder the immensity of the mind of God. The immensity of his wisdom. Also the immensity of his knowledge and the immensity of, of his power when we think about that. But those are not the things that Paul wants to talk to them about. Paul wants to talk to them about something that paints a portrait of who Jesus is. Understanding the immensity of deity to our limited capacity is important. But that's not what Paul writes about. He says, have this mind in you, which is in Christ Jesus. And the first few verses, he speaks about what that mind is. And then he illustrates the mind of Jesus. As John writes his gospel, repetitively throughout that gospel, we find allusion to the miracles that Jesus performed. And the people fixed on that. They transfixed their minds upon the miracles he performed and missed the word he was speaking. They were anxious to see the show. But they were not as anxious to hear his message. And that was his burden to bear. To me, it's almost incomprehensible. When we think about the immensity of who God is to contemplate. That he says this. Come to me. For I am meek and lowly. Deity, meek, and lowly. That's amazing to think about. But that's the invitation that he gives. Well, when Paul talks about this mind of Jesus, how can we illustrate this mind such that it becomes more real to us? 
Because again, we're not talking about deity here. We're talking about the portrait of who Jesus is. How can we do that? Well, I'd like to walk through a few illustrations the Bible gives us and think about that this morning. First of all, I'd like to think about his beginning. When you think about the beginning of Jesus, in fact, you come back to, to chapter 2 of, of Philippians and, and you begin to see this. He says in verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the death, even the death of the cross. That sounds a lot like, to me, John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. And that Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld, as it were, the glory of God. Jesus is the only person that has ever chosen to be born. And he did not have to do, to do so. He owed us nothing. There was nothing within us that would draw through some winsomeness the Creator to die for the creature. But understand, it's not simply the Creator dying for the creature. It's the Creator dying for the enemy who happens to be a creature. Nothing in us would have compelled him to do that, but he chose to do so. And when we think about that beginning, we think about the beginning of Jesus. We think about where he was born. If we've been painting that picture, how would we have done that? Would we have used a barn? Would we have used a stable? Would we have used a feed trough in which Jesus was going to be laid? Is that what we would have done? Wouldn't there have been somebody that would have certainly left the light on for them, at least at the very least, at Motel 6, if not the Hilton Garden Inn, to think about that? He was born in the most innocuous, inexplicable of circumstances. And furthermore, he was not born to a princess. He was not born to a queen. He was born to a young girl who was simply a peasant girl who was a nobody. Who upon finding out that she was with child had now to explain that to her betrothed husband. And who had to be convinced that she still was pure. That she had not violated herself. Would we have started that way? And yet Paul says, let this mind be in you. And Jesus did not think it robbery at all to let go of the glory that was His with the Father in heaven and put on this flesh in the body prepared for Him. To leave the immensity of the glory of God and then come down to Live among the filth and the flesh of all human putridity and degradation. And yet also endure all that filth produced. We see his mind in his beginning. 
Second of all, turn with John to me with John chapter 4. John chapter 4. There's this occasion that takes place with the woman at the well. Jesus has been teaching steadily now, without a break, for eight months. And as he approaches the well, it says he sat down on the curb, and literally that means he dropped like a rock. Literally what that means was he was absolutely exhausted. And here comes this woman in the distance. I don't know whether he thought this, and I realize that when I say this, this is an abominable stereotype. So I acknowledge it. I don't know whether he's thinking, okay, could it have not been a man coming? Does it have to be a woman coming? Women have 500,000 words a day. Men have 250,000 words a day. And she's probably only used 499,000 words. And I don't have the bandwidth for them. Is she going to want to talk? Except that's not what happens. Jesus engages her. And we pick it up in John chapter 4 and begin in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you know nothing with and the well is, you have, you have nothing with you and the well is deep. Where then do you get living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him, I will never thirst. But the water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw again. And Jesus said, now pause. He's just been thinking about water and thirst. And Jesus is using that. And she wants to drink this water. And now Jesus then just slightly turns the conversation from water and thirst. And then says, sounds good to me. Go get your Husband. And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you know, the one whom you now have, is not your husband, in that you spoke the truth. What would we have done there? This is a knot compared to Gordian's knot, and we will never get this figured out. She has been married five times. Certainly, none of those can be legitimate. And now then, she's bypassed marriage, and she's living with a man, not her husband. I wonder if we would have said, nice to meet you, here's your water, I'm going on. Because marriage circumstances are naughty problems and we are not going to be able to untie this problem. So you've got a problem here and we're never going to solve it. You have to be with God. I know the answer for you. You go away. That's not what Jesus does. 
Jesus engages this woman. Do we not see the humility of Jesus in this? Paul said, have this mind in you. The kind of mind that we're going to have like Jesus is we're going to stand, we're going to help the person out of humility, deep humility, solve the problem and find their answer. It could only take someone who came from heaven to this earth that would have been able to answer that question in the way that he answered it. And I wonder in his imagination, did he think at that moment, I came from heaven and the glory of God for earth to earth for this? When the disciples had left Jesus prior to this conversation, they'd gone to town to get food. They'd gone into McDonald's to buy their Happy Meals with their precious French fries, and now they're coming back. And when they left Jesus, He's exhausted. And now they come back, and Jesus has engaged this woman. And in verse 34 it says, Jesus said to them, when they said, Hey, what's up? My food is to the will of Him who sent me to finish His work. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm invigorated now, guys. I have now eaten the food I need to receive the energy I need. My food is to do the will of God. No, I'm not exhausted anymore. Let's go find somebody else. Will we have that kind of humility? Would we be so energized to say, my food is to do the will of God? Or out of exhaustion and a concern of the inconvenience of this woman, would we have just simply folded up, said hi, and walked away. That's not what Jesus did. And Paul was saying, have this mind in you. Turn to Luke chapter 7. Turn to Luke chapter 7. We find another circumstance in the life of Jesus. We find here Simon and the sinful woman. Jesus has come into the house of Simon, and Simon... Wants it for nothing else but to have a good show. Simon's having a party. He needs the entertainment. And so now Jesus comes in. And when Jesus comes into his house, he doesn't even extend to him the, the cordiality, cordialities that go with being hospitable to someone. There were things that you would do that day, we might not do today, that he did not even extend to Jesus. And so it says, verse 36, that one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, spoke to himself. He's speaking to himself. He's not saying this out loud. He's speaking to himself. And this is what he says. This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. Then Jesus answered him and said, Wait a minute. Answering what? Because he has said nothing out loud. Well, in John chapter 2, verse 25, it says, Jesus did not need for any man 
to tell others what was in the heart of man because he knew the heart of me. And now then he has understood the heart of Simon and answered him. Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50, and when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon's not a dummy. Simon can add, one plus one is two. And so Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who forgave him more. Now Simon's not a dummy, he can add, but is a dummy with regard to applying what Jesus is just about to apply to him. He's still speaking to himself, he's not listening. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. And here's the bottom line, Simon. You see that woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She's washed my feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil. But this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I want to ask you this, Simon. You said to her, her sins are many. Therefore, I say to you, her sins are many, which are forgiven. For she loved me much, but to whom little is given, the same will love little. Therefore, he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table began to say in themselves, they're saying to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Here is this self-righteous Pharisee that Jesus comes into his house. Here is the Savior coming into his house. And Simon wants him to come into the house, but he is not even hospitable to him. I wonder if the Savior were to come into our house, would we be hospitable to him? Or would it require someone so broken and undone in sin? In fact, notice the language that Simon uses. He calls her this woman. And then he calls this woman a sinner. That word sinner there is not the polite term for sinner. This woman who is filthy as a sinner. And she's coming in her filthy hands and she's touching his feet and he's doing nothing about it. How dare you? How dare you let her do that? And furthermore, the homes then weren't like ours where you have nice little level or blinds or custom made blinds. You can close them so nobody can see in the house. Nobody can see who you're having in your house. There are wide open windows. And people are walking by and the crowd house is crowded and now people outside the house are crowded and they're looking in the windows and you can just hear the murmuring begin. Do you see what he's doing? He's letting her touch him. Can you believe that? And then he asked the question, here's this guy who owed a whole bunch. Here's this guy who owed very little. And both were forgiven, but who appreciated the most? And Simon said, the guy who owed a whole bunch. And the Lord said, right, Simon, you missed it. You think you owe a little. 
And you don't appreciate the little you get. But this woman, you think owed a whole bunch. And now she appreciates it. You don't even appreciate the little bit you got. Now I want to ask you. If you don't appreciate the little bit you have. And she appreciates the bunch she has. I want to ask you. Who owes the most? You see what Jesus did here? Here is his total selflessness. He has no concern for his own awareness before this woman as far as what anybody thinks about him. And Paul says, let this mind be in you. By the way, sidebar. In these two passages we look at, John 4 and Luke chapter 7, have we noticed how comfortable these people were with Jesus? Have we noticed how comfortable this woman is in the presence of Jesus? The only objection that the woman before had is, has you being a Jew speak to me who is a woman as a Samaritan? And given the clash of the, the communities of the day, she was right to think about that. But she found herself welcomed by him. Why is it that this woman who is a filthy sinner and the woman who has five husbands and the one she's living with is not her husband, why do they find themselves comfortable in the presence of Jesus? I mean, here is pristine purity. He is too righteous to behold iniquity. There is no lawlessness in him. And yet they come and they find themselves comfortable in his presence. Why is that the case? Because they knew he cared for them. He didn't turn and walk the other way. In neither case does Jesus say, Okay, ladies, you had a nice life. You got a lot to undo. You may never get it done. So y'all just keep going the way you're doing and don't worry about it. Everything's going to be peachy king. Everything's going to be all right. No. Jesus says to both, Your sins are forgiven, which are many. Go and sin no more. That's what he's telling them. But they felt comfortable with him. Look at another illustration of this. Look at his disciples and turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. Jesus is well into the last year of his life. Headed toward Jerusalem to face the Jews and to be crucified. On three different occasions, Jesus, at least three different occasions, Jesus has to rebuke his disciples because they're all thinking in their mind, who's going to be graced in the kingdom of heaven? Who's going to be graced in the kingdom of heaven? And so they're coming from Jerusalem to Jericho, and now then they're having this conversation. So in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 20, it says, Then the mother of Zebedee's son came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. Pause. Whether it's true or not, if you ask Debbie Shouse, who is the greatest preacher on earth, she will not say Roger. And she will not say Ricky Jenkins. She'll say Jordan Shouse. And if you want to know who the greatest preacher is on earth, you just ask Evan Marie Jenkins. I can give you the phone number. I'm glad for you to call her. You may need to know this. My mother will say, I am, not my dad. Why? That's what mothers do. 
Mothers think their children, and that's great, and I'm not criticizing that. I'm applauding it. They think their children are the best, greatest ones on the earth. Right, moms? Yeah. And now then, you've got Mama Zebedee coming with James and John still sucking on a pacifier, and they're coming, and Mama Zebedee is going to plead the case for them and say, look, Lord, my boy's been good to you. They left their father high and dry out here in the shipping in the fishing business. He hadn't recovered yet. They left the business and now they've come to follow you. Will you please give one a place at your right hand and one a place at your left hand? And Jesus says, okay, time out. You better pay attention to what you're asking for. Are you sure? Are you sure you want what you're asking for? Are you sure you want the cup you're asking for that you're about to drink? Are you sure you want that? A little later on in John, Matthew chapter 20, it says, then the other disciples were filled with anger toward them. And we look at that and say, well, sure. They asked their mother to come. I didn't. No, they're not angry because of that. They're not angry because James and John asked that. That's not what they're angry about. They're angry at James and John because James and John beat them to the punch. That's what they were going to ask about. And now they're jealous and they're mad at them because they want those spots in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus said to them, this is where greatness is found, and this is the mind of God. Greatness is not found in, I have my rights. He emptied himself of his rights. He emptied himself of the glory. He had the right, every right to stay at the right hand of the Father. He had every right to be there. And he emptied himself of that. And so what Jesus is saying is, you can't say, I'm going to be great in the kingdom of heaven is all you're worried about is your rights and somebody hasn't honored your rights. Because greatness in the kingdom of heaven is found in sacrificing our rights for the service and the good of others. Are we willing to drink that cup? The disciples are so concerned about themselves, they fail to get the point. So the night before Jesus is going to die, he says, I've been trying to hammer this into their hard heads for three years now. I'm going to try to illustrate this in such a way they'll never forget it. And so they're in that upper room and they, they're there and he gets up from them. They must have been thinking, what's he doing? Did he lose his mind? What's going on? And he scourge himself with a towel, pours a pitcher of water and begins to wash their feet. And he comes to Peter first. And in typical Peter impetuosity fashion, he says, not my feet, Lord. What's he thinking? Big men don't wash the feet of little men. And this is the biggest man of all. And when I get to be a big man, I'm not washing anybody's feet. And Jesus says to Peter, Ricky's translation, Peter, if you don't get this and let me wash your feet, don't worry about washing your body because you're out of here. And Peter gets it and says, okay, Lord, then not my feet only, everything. He said, no, I told you, I don't need your body. I just want to wash your feet. I want you to understand, you have to stoop to serve somebody. The bane of humanity and the bane of brethren, including me, is that we're too worried about who's going to wash my feet. And not whose feet can I wash. 
Imagine a world. And we don't have to imagine it because carnality is not going to let it be that way. In which we had a president, a senate, and a congress, and executive judges, and what they would say is, Mr. President, can I come wash your feet while we're talking about this? And the president said, no, listen, I'm coming to the house. I'm going to wash your feet while we're talking about this. And by the way, let's find out what the justices want. And the justices say, no, we're going to come to the house and we're going to wash your feet. If everybody was arguing over who's going to wash their feet, who's going to wash whose feet, we wouldn't have a problem with that, would we? Now, what would it be in the church? When we have interactions between one another, we butt heads. It's not a matter of truth, it's not a matter of doctrine, we just butt heads because we butt heads. What instead of butting heads, we said, well, I'm trying to solve this with you. Would you sit down before me? I've got some nice warm water here with some soap, and I like to wash your feet. I'll just massage your feet while we're talking about this. And while you're massaging the feet, nice, warm, and soapy, just, your hands just sliding all over. But I mean, you're grinding. You're just working at it. You're grinding it, man. You're there. And all I know is, man, this is a great foot rub. Wish they'd have come earlier. Wow. Can you come tomorrow and give me another foot rub? No, you're working it out. And they're saying thank you. What did Jesus do with his disciples? He stooped to serve them. Let this mind be in you. Would we have that kind of meek spirit? Would we have that kind of meek spirit? The power to resist, but rather the willingness to submit. That's the mind of Jesus. What Paul writes, let me ask you, is this an impossibility? It's an impossibility to have the mind of deity to be omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. That's an impossibility. But what I've illustrated here, is there something here that's an impossibility for us to do? To have this mind that's illustrated in these passages, is there something there that's an impossibility for us to do? When Paul said, let this mind in you be in you, what he's simply saying is, you have the same selfless, humble, serving kind of mind that Jesus has. And you'll have the mind of God. And if you'll let that mind be your identity, tying into Jordan's lesson, then we won't have to worry about what the world says we are. Because the mind of God is our mind. Jesus said this, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. The taking up of the cross is not fashioning a piece of wood to put a wheel on the bottom side of it to pull it all over across the United States of America. The cross is not a burden. The cross was an instrument of death. And he says, if you want to be my disciple, you are going to have to take up my cross. There's going to have to be a death involved. There's going to have to be a casting off and a putting on. A putting off and a putting on. There's going to have to be the crucifixion 
of an old man because that old man with his selfish interests will not have the mind of God. And so if we're going to be his disciples, before we ever think about following him, there's going to have to be a death of our will that will ultimately say, your will be done. Will we have the mind of God? Paul said, let this mind be in you. Do you need the Lord this morning? Do you need the forgiveness of your sins? Have your sins washed away? That's where this begins. That mind will not be there as long as we stay in our carnality and our sins. And Jesus provided the means. Baptism washes away our sins and we enter into a new relationship with God because we have now had a change of mind about God and sin and no longer serve sin, but now serve God. Because we know He's the Christ. We may come at this moment just as we are. But once we enter that relationship with Him, will not remain the same. But when we come to Him, every one of us come the same. We come broken. Will you come while we stand and while we sing? Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com questions at thebibleway.com we'd love to have you in person come if you can but thank you for connecting with us